Well, good morning, everybody. Let me welcome you again to the Story Church. I'm so glad you're here. You fought through the elements. You fought the cold weather. You fought the marathon traffic. Who runs in, this, in these temperatures? I don't understand. I just don't understand who runs. Like, that's just, I, I, I will never understand it. I have all the respect in the world for those marathoners, but you won't catch me out there. Amen. Can I get an amen? Anybody? All right. So, glad y'all are here today. I know it wasn't easy to get here. We live, if you're not familiar with Houston, you're watching online, we live in a part of the city that's sort of right in the middle of the marathon traffic, so a little bit of a different Sunday uh, today in that way. But whether you're here in person person or joining us online from uh, anywhere around the state, the country, the world, we're so glad that you're here. You're part of the story today. My name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor. And as many of you know, our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. So plain and simple as that, and uh, I hope that this message today um, lends itself to that, to that mission. That's my hope and it was my prayer as I, as I um, sort of sat with the Lord and wrote this message this week. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, courage today, and I hope that all of us, myself included, uh, we are convicted today by the end of this message about um, the times and places in our lives that God has clearly been calling us to be more courageous, and maybe we have cowered instead. And I don't mean it to shame anybody. It's, it's all of us. You know, we're all in this together. But I want us to honestly assess the ways in which we could be more courageous, like Jesus, more courageous in Jesus' name uh, for, for his sake. And so we're going to talk about that some today. I was reflecting back on my life and thinking about how courageous I used to be. And I think about the first half of my life so far, let's say the first 20 or so years. And, uh, and I lacked a lot of things, you guys. I lacked good looks. If you have seen any pictures of me from back then, like, you know, like, it's like, what happened? Like, <laughs> I lacked good looks. I lacked wealth. You know, I, I lacked uh, common sense. I lacked the best grades. Like, I lacked a lot. But honestly, I can't say that I lacked courage early in life. Now, I know there's a thin line when you're young between courageous and stupid. I'm aware of that. For today's message, for the purpose of this message, y'all can just humor me. We'll call it courage today, all right? I look back, and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, no one in their right mind would make some of the choices that I made, but I made them. And and I made them knowing kind of what I was doing. I I wasn't just walking blindly. I, I, I wanted to be courageous early in life. When I was 14, I took my first job. Um, you know, 14 years old, making four bucks an hour, working in the graveyard, the cemetery of my hometown, which meant hours and hours of really hard work, you know, from sometimes early in the morning, sometimes after sundown, you know, dark, sometimes in the cemetery, tending to the tombstones, digging up the sunken ones. Some of them were unmarked, ancient stones, super creepy, weed eating, mowing around, the, the, the tombstones, and, and often by myself, but I didn't hesitate, and I guess that was a form of courage for me then. It, it didn't bother me. I kind of liked it, actually. It kind of made it interesting to me. When I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license and bought an old truck and started picking up hitchhikers. I've talked a little bit about my proclivity for picking up hitchhikers, and you can call it stupid. I'll call it courageous, okay? I was courageous. I have a lot of stories to tell from those courageous days. When I was 17 or 18, I took another job at a local hospital 
as a mental health technician, which sounds way more glamorous than it was, mental health technician, in a geriatric psych unit. So that means I was um, responsible for taking care of elderly patients with serious dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, bipolar, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, borderline personality disorders, and, and there was nowhere else for these particular folks to go. And so I was responsible for making sure they took their meds, feeding them, um, you know, cleaning them up, showering or bathing them, helping them in the bathroom. Like I told you, less glamorous than it sounds. It was as bad as you, you can imagine in some ways. When they got aggressive, which often happened, especially with some of the guys and the men in the unit, um, I, I was responsible for re restraining them, putting the restraints on them. It's a lot of responsibility for a 17, 18 year old kid. But I stepped up and I did that job. When most of my friends didn't have jobs, if they did, it was like at McDonald's or something. Not, nothing against McDonald's, but I mean, this, I've got some stories I could tell about this job. When I was 18, I went off to college, met a girl. Y'all know the girl that I met when I was 18, went off to college. I shot my shot, day one, shot my shot, like no hesitation. She's way out of my league, way out of my league in every conceivable way, shot my shot. And uh, after she got over some hesitations of her own, she, uh, she consented and relented. And, and, uh, and a year after that, before the, the weekend before our freshman year ended, when all of our classmates were out partying, you know, one last time before summer break, I had gone to Zales and bought a diamond ring with a line of credit that was like 34% interest, ridiculous sales interest. I didn't care, I was on a mission and I went back to that campus and got down on one knee, asked that girl to marry me. And we were both 19. At 20, we got married, we went to Kansas City, spent most of our 20s in some of Kansas City's most dangerous, least desirable neighborhoods. And I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't lift any of this up as a way of being braggy. If anyway, it's a self-own, it's a self-indictment. I'll get to that in a second. But throughout our 20s, we spent most of that time serving the people no one else wanted to serve. We served homeless people and disadvantaged youth and kids that were in gangs or thinking about being in gangs and, and, uh, and addicts and ex-cons and immigrants, including undocumented ones. We served anybody the Lord put in front of us and uh, at times it was dangerous. At times it was scary, you know? But we never hesitated really, we just wanted to make a difference. And then something happened toward the end of our 20s and into our 30s. Uh, we transitioned as a couple from a couple of, you know, edgy young adults to a couple of new parents. We had kids. And that little girl, uh, is now 16, as many of you know, she celebrated her sweet 16th back in October, and that little boy celebrated his 14th birthday yesterday. And I remember when we first became parents, we sort of circled the wagons. We stopped making or taking the same risks that we had taken before, and I'm not blaming the kids for that. I think, I think it's a natural thing for new parents to do, and I, I think it's perfectly normal and acceptable for, uh, for parents to circle the wagons and think about their family's safety and protection for a while. But I'll tell you, as my kids have gotten older, taking the safe road has started to make less and less sense. As they are getting older and more self-sufficient, they're basically young adults now, in my opinion. And, and so it's probably time for us to stop being so safe and seeking our own security all the time. It's probably time to start 
taking risks again and being courageous like we used to be, um, especially when we consider the fact we're following Jesus. And friends, I said this last week, but I can't emphasize it enough. Your salvation is free. You don't need to do anything to earn it. It won't cost you a thing to be saved. But to follow Jesus could cost you everything. It's often quite costly. But it's the life we're called to in Christ. And so it doesn't make sense to take the safe road. Uh, unfortunately for some of us, unfortunately for me sometimes, you know, Jesus never said, you know, take up your, your passy or your blankie and follow me, did he? He said, take up your cross, which is always uh, a painful, sort of uncomfortable thing, all right? So the question I want us to wrestle with today, as honest as we can, is how can we as Christians, followers of Jesus, choose courage? How can we be more courageous in our daily lives? And, and I, I approach this question with humility and, and with the recognition that courageous acts, courage itself is not a personality trait. I'm not even sure it's a virtue in its own right. I think it is an amplifier of virtues. And it is what we see in virtuous people when the chips are down. Anybody can be virtuous when it's easy. When it's hard, when it's tough, when it's dangerous, to be virtuous in any way requires courage. And so we're going to talk about how we can be more courageous today. This is part 17 of our 26-part series called Acts of the Apostles. We are entering the home stretch of this long series through the book of Acts. Today we're going to be in chapter 16 of Acts. I'm happy to say that everybody that brought a Bible today will be able to see it with the light that is shining down from heaven, all right? So it's not just you guys anymore. It's the whole room. If you're watching online, you don't know what I'm talking about, but we were living in darkness on this side of the room for several weeks, and now our, uh, our teams have made this happen, so the room is feeling a lot better. We're going to be in chapter 16 today, and what we're going to see in this reading is our, our five forms that courage can take in our lives, in our lives today as, as modern Christians living in 2024. We're going to start in verse uh, 16 of chapter 16. If y'all want to uh, turn there with me or, or open your Bible apps or follow on the screen. Acts 16 verse 16 says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, just for clarification, we is Luke, the author of Acts, and Paul and some other Christian leaders. And they were going to the place of prayer in a city called Philippi, okay, major city um, where, where they were ministering. And it says, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She was a fortune teller, but it was a dark arts kind of thing. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. <laughs> Paul became so annoyed after many days that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. I want to talk about how this part of the story in Acts 16 is an example of the courage that stirs things up. Christians are often, I think, called to have the courage to stir things up. And I know it comes as a surprise to a lot of us who've been steeped in polite Christian culture in our time and place, right, where Christians are seemingly called to be anything but disruptive. Like a lot of us have grown up 
being taught or believing that Christians are supposed to be compliant, always complacent, you know, peaceful, and, and peacekeepers. You know, the Bible says be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. It's a very different thing. And sometimes to be a peacemaker isn't to be that compliant little, you know, sheep of the world anyway. But it's, I talk to Christians sometimes, and it's like Christians have this idea that, you know, there's an 11th commandment, and it's be nice no matter what. Like, that's, that's the feeling I get. And I'm all about being kind. I think we should be patient. We should be loving. But there's a time when Christians are called to stir the pot. We don't have to look very far to find it in the Bible. Let's look at Jesus, who was often abrasive, even, dare I say, insulting to the powers that were in his time and place. He was disruptive when he needed to be. And these first Christians were too. Now I know the passage we just read was a little confusing, wasn't it? Who's this slave girl and what's the fortune telling stuff all about? Well, it's a, it's a cult practice. And it's as relevant today as ever. Just look around and you'll see palm readers, fortune tellers, you know, tarot cards and all kinds of other, we call them new age or occult practices that people are paying money to engage in. Some of them are just charlatans and faking it. Some of them are getting that knowledge from somewhere, and I'm telling you, it's probably nowhere good. So we should always be very careful when dealing with these sorts of dark arts, and Paul knew this very well. This girl, I have a lot of mercy in my heart for her. She's a slave girl, and she was spiritually oppressed, if not possessed, right? The Bible says she was possessed, I believe it. But she was a slave. She had no agency of her own. When her owners saw that she was a moneymaker, they basically became her pimps. That was the situation. She was chattel to them. She was a revenue stream. And, and what, like I think the confusing part on first reading is what was it that she did that annoyed Paul so much? She was saying something technically true, wasn't she? What was she saying? These men are, are, are sent by the most high God telling everybody how to be saved. Is that a lie? No. But the devil doesn't have to lie technically in order to deceive. And in this way, the deception comes from the distraction that she was presenting to Paul's uh, gospel-sharing mission. And silencing the distraction became mission critical. He had to disrupt the disruption in order to proceed with God's calling, right? Even though he knew this was going to be a stir-it-up kind of a moment. Paul was a man of the world. He knew how the world works. He knew pimps like these sordid individuals who were using this girl. He knew they didn't like to lose revenue streams, but he did it anyway. Why? Because it was mission critical. It had to be done. It was the right thing to do. Sometimes God will call you to stir something up, and it's easier said than done, but Paul and Silas uh, followed through on this, um, on this calling. Now, tomorrow, uh, we'll celebrate MLK Day in the United States, and I know um, I mean, everybody, no one can deny Dr. King, uh, although, you know, not a perfect person, no one is a perfect person, a man of great faith and a man of great courage. And we owe a lot today to his courage, and we should honor him for his courage. In his eyes, a man of God or any person of God uh, should not put up with something as evil as uh, segregation and other things going on in his world at the time. 
And so segregation was a disruption to God's order, and it was a disruption worth disrupting. And here's what Dr. King said about courage. This is his definition. He said, courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it political? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor political nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. If it's right in God's eyes, it's worth stirring up a little trouble over. For people who love the Lord, we're also called to love his ways, to love his truth. Oftentimes we'll take a back seat to this and just keep quiet and be pleasant. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Paul either. He called out this demon even though he, even though he knew it would cost him something. And it did. And that's what we're going to see next as we look at what happened next in the story. If you keep following along with me in Acts 16, verse 19. It says, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. I don't know what that has to do with anything other than just being anti-Semitic. Like this is a racist sort of trope here. And they're not accusing Paul based on the merits of what he did. They're just, they're, they're trying to uh, get the mob riled up. These men are Jews. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. These men are not like us, and this isn't how we do things, and so we should deal with them. The crowd, or the mob, joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So first we see that Paul demonstrated the courage to stir the pot and here we see Paul demonstrating another kind of courage, and that is the courage to suffer for the cause of Christ. And if you're not willing to suffer the consequences of stirring the pot, you shouldn't stir the pot in the first place. I see a lot of Christians try, like we're trying our best. We'll stir the pot, the mob will come after us, and then we'll just apologize and back off and delete the post or whatever. It's like, you know, we get scared by what the world, how the world reacts to um, something that's fundamentally true for Christians. And, uh, and, so, and so we'll back down. But Paul and Silas didn't stir things up and run for cover, did they? They stirred things up, and then they stood their ground. And they stood up to the mob. They absorbed the attacks of the mob. They took their beating. They were thrown into prison without due process. And this sort of is the most interesting part of this little, this little story here, is that Paul and Silas, as they're taking their punishment they didn't deserve, they're holding back their ace up their sleeve, or they're holding back their, their trump card, so to speak, which was their Roman citizenship. There was certain authority and protections provided to Roman citizens. That was sort of the name of the game for Rome. That's what set them apart in that world, was that Roman citizens had certain protections. You couldn't treat a Roman citizen the way Paul and Silas were being treated here. Without due process, without, without just cause, but Paul and Silas took this beating, he took this punishment without ever mentioning their citizenship. 
And I don't know about you, but I thought about this a lot. If it was me, the minute they broke out the rods, I'd be like, citizen, 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 you know? What about you? Would you? Would you hold that back? No, I'd be screaming it. I'm not as courageous as Paul and Silas, I confess. But they held that back because they were willing to suffer unjustly as, with a greater outcome in mind. We're going to see how this unfolds. But it's the wisdom of the Lord in the face of something really scary. This is what courage looks like for those of us following Jesus. It just means not letting fear take over. It's amazing to me how secure the world is now in terms of food security, especially our part of the world. Food security and water security and just overall sense of safety. And, and yet people are more afraid than ever. And it's a reminder that, yeah, the world's a scary place, but we get to decide what to do with fear. Just because the world's scary doesn't mean you have to be scared. I mean, courage isn't about not being scared. Courage isn't saying the world's not scary. The Bible says don't be afraid more than it says any other phrase. But it also says the world is dark, the world is evil, the world is scary. <laughs> Look out, watch out, be careful. But don't be afraid. Another uh, voice from our past in America, um, FDR, President Roosevelt, defined courage this way. He says, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Something else is more important than fear. And so the courage to suffer for what's right is the courage to look at something scary and say there's something bigger too. There's something more important than what might uh, you know, drive us into fear or cowardice. Let's keep reading. Acts 16, verse 19. Look for the courage in this passage. I'm going to read six verses. When her, I'm sorry, I already read that, right? I already read that. Acts 16, verse 25. Okay, let's keep going. Sorry, slides person is freaking out right now. Acts 16, verse 25 says, I'm going to read one verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, this kind of courage is a curveball. First two probably made some sense that you got to have the courage to stir the pot. You got to have the courage to suffer. But what about the courage to sing? What about the courage to sing? To sing in the darkness, to sing in the prison, to sing in your most desperate hour, to sing when all seems lost, to sing when you're not sure what the, what the, what the future might hold. That's what Paul and Silas were up against when they were put in the inner cell in the prison and put in the stocks. Total darkness, but they sang anyway. There's something deeply courageous about worshiping out loud in uncertain times. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There are two things that you will hear in every strong, healthy, vibrant church. The first is babies crying, and the second is men singing. And I don't mean to leave the ladies out of this one. I just know from experience ladies are more prone to sing in church or just about anywhere, really. Even if you can't sing, ladies, it doesn't stop you. It seems like you just keep singing. Can't carry a tune, doesn't matter. Sing with all your heart. Men have a lot to learn from you. Because men keep something back in this way sometimes, either because we're afraid of sounding foolish or I don't know this song or I can't sing as high as him or her or whatever. It's like 
I can't carry a tune in a bucket, so I'll just stand here quietly. I don't know. Sounds like cowardice to me. Sounds like you're afraid about what other people around you will say. There's something courageous about singing out, even and especially in dark circumstances. It takes courage to sing to God. And I love how Luke gives us a little more insight here as Paul and Silas sing. He said the other prisoners heard everything that they sang. And so it was important that Paul and Silas weren't just singing the latest Billboard Top 40 hits. They weren't singing, you know, a Swift song or whatever. Like they were singing hymns and praises to God. Why was that important? Because everybody was listening. Christians, everybody's listening. Everybody's always listening. Your unbelieving kids and grandkids are listening. Your, your Facebook friends and Instagram followers and Twitter, whatever's X, I don't know. They're all listening. Not just to how you sing, although that's part of it. They're listening to how you speak. They're observing how you react to the circumstances around you. They're witnessing how you love or not. And we always hear the horror stories. You know, I walked away from the Lord because I... I just watched and listened to too many Christians doing the wrong things, saying bad things, whatever. Hypocrites, they would say. And that's probably true and something we should grieve. But the other side of that coin is also true, that there are people sitting in this room who came to faith in Christ because they listened to what a Christian was saying or singing or how a Christian was living. They watched. And a Christian showed them Jesus. You have no idea the power that the Lord has granted you as a believer, a follower of Jesus in the public sphere, you just need to be aware they're watching, they're listening. And every moment of every day the Lord gives you on this earth is an opportunity to witness to a world longing for truth and longing for love, longing for God. So that takes real courage. This is the courage to sing like Paul and Silas sang. That's a testimony. Let's keep reading. This is the longest part of this passage. Y'all just um, kind of dial in with me here and, and, uh, and, and let's look at the, the way courage surfaces in these verses. I find this part of the story to be the meatiest and most fascinating part of the story, and I think you'll see why. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. This was a, a sort of a, he was ashamed and didn't want to face the shame, so he was sort of honor killing himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer then called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Who else was listening to their songs? How else would he know? What must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and his household, all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Congratulations, etc." But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed, for reasons I explained earlier. And they came to appease Paul and Silas and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Why did they want them out of the city? Because they were culpable of a crime. And Paul and Silas could prove it and hold it over their heads. You know, sometimes it's common for uh, Christians to claim that it takes courage to go. When God sends us somewhere, it takes courage to go. And that's probably true. It is true. Sometimes that's the case. But there's also times when it takes courage to stay. And this is less talked about in our world today. You'll often hear about the courage to go, the courage to look out for yourself, the courage to self-preserve and self-care or self-love, all this. Sometimes there is deep virtue in having the courage to stay, not for yourself, but for others. The courage to stay when it's easier to run away. This happened twice in the passage, if you were listening or reading closely. Twice Paul and Silas could have run away, and anyone would have said, dude, run. This is your chance. Run to freedom. Run to safety. Get away. No one would have blamed them had they run, had they run away. That's not what they did. They stayed. The first time was after the earthquake when the doors flung open and their chains shook loose. And they stayed in their prison cell. Why? I thought about this all week. The only sense I can make of that move is because the deep wisdom that comes with sort of being in fellowship in the Holy Spirit is that you start to see what God's really up to. And you start to see how little it has to do with you sometimes. And while some of us who are less mature than Paul and Silas would take that earthquake in that prison that night to mean God wanted to set us free, Paul and Silas could see that God had something even bigger in mind. That earthquake wasn't meant to set them free. It was sent to set the jailer free. The jailer takes center stage. He's the one whose life and his whole household is transformed eternally by the aftermath of that earthquake. And in order to see that, Paul and Silas first had to choose to stay in an uncomfortable situation that most of us would be prone to flee. There is great virtue and deep value in staying when others would flee. The second time that this happens is toward the end of the story when Paul and Silas still hadn't played that ace up their sleeves, that citizenship card, right? And, and Paul, being the master strategist that he was, knew that when he and the other Christian leaders left Philippi, the Philippian church would be left behind largely unprotected in a, a most hostile environment, an environment that had already tried to seize Paul and Silas. What are they going to do to these poor Christians that we leave here after we're gone? And so Paul, being a wise man, saw an opportunity to claim some leverage and to hold it over the heads of the magistrates 
by saying, no, we're not just going to go because they've ordered it from a distance. They're going to come and we're going to talk. I'm going to look them in the eye. And this whole exchange gives me the, the vibe of like um, Paul saying to them, if you, <laughs> I know it's not in the text. Work with me here. I think Paul looked at them and said something like, if you so much as lay a hand on my people here, I'll come back with my documents and we'll go visit your superiors. If you so much as bother, trouble, or disturb this little group of my brothers and sisters, you won't hear the last of me. I'll be back. And so I think that's the, the gist of the conversation that they had. And I think that's why Paul stayed, even though it would have been more expedient, more comfortable for him, uh, and certainly safer for him to leave that prison at his first opportunity. Y'all, what I'm saying here is that staying isn't easy sometimes. Staying in a difficult, uncomfortable situation sometimes isn't advisable in the world's eyes. The world will tell you that you, the purpose of your life is to be happy, to, to live a happy life, to take it easy, to seek your own fulfillment first. And so if the situation you're in is uncomfortable, of course you should flee it. Of course you should seek the safety of something else or someone else. There is deep Christian virtue in staying in a marriage that's uncomfortable or unhappy for a season or longer than a season. And I know this doesn't apply to every marriage, and I don't mean to shame anyone who's walked away for good biblical reasons. That's not the point. That's not the point. I'm just saying if you're feeling stuck in an uncomfortable situation now, I want you to see the great value and benefit of staying. What, what, it, what it means to stay in a situation like that is to trust that God can do something in the life of someone close to you, your spouse or your family, someone close to you, who hasn't made your life easy, but that God is able to reach nonetheless. And so you, you stick it out. You stay. That takes great courage. It's not just in marriage either. Sometimes it's in our family relationships with a family member who just knows the buttons to push. And, and you feel them drifting further and further away from God. Or a child who's growing up into adulthood and you feel them drifting further and further away from God and every conversation turns into a fight. Don't stop calling. Stay with them. If, as much as it depends on you, stay with them. There's courage in it. And I think about other situations that aren't as broad and, you know, life-altering, long-term situations that are more in the moment, right? Sometimes fleeing is easier, and man, our phones make it easier for us to flee without even fleeing. We just flee in terms of our presence and our, the attention. You can flee a room just by doing this, you know? Sometimes being present in an uncomfortable situation is so deeply meaningful and a blessing to those around you. Last week, between our 8.30 and 9.45 service, it was like 9.42, one of my buddies who goes to church here, one of my brothers in Christ, guy who's running the camera right now, he doesn't know I'm about to say this, pulled me aside at 9.42 and said that he had just gotten word that his best friend of over 25 years had died. And he was crying, and guy's not much of a crier. He's kind of a tough guy, so to speak. And, uh, you know, Mr. Car Guy, motorcycle guy, tough guy, like handlebar mustache guy, like he's a guy, you know, but he was crying, and I said, bro, if you need to go, just go home, I'm sorry, we'll take care of getting somebody on the camera, 
And he said, no, I want to stay. I want to be here. The people watching online need me to stay. The church needs me to stay. I made a commitment, so I'll stay. I know that's a smaller sort of momentary decision, but it meant the world to me. It was such an encouragement to me and to everybody that knows him, and I pray that it was an encouragement to him as well when he stayed, when he could have fled. He chose to stay. There's courage in it. Let's look at the last verse of this passage. Acts 16, verse 40. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So Paul and Silas basically win this chess match they were playing with the magistrates. They've got all their bases covered. They're sort of this celebrity status at this point. But still, before leaving town and, you know, shaking the dust off their sandals, they went back to the brothers and sisters, to the church, the small, fledgling church made up, presumably, of Lydia, who we met earlier in Acts 16, a new believer, uh, maybe a slave girl who used to have a demon in her and tell fortunes, and a jailer who was, you know, not a Christian three hours ago. Like, this church is a fledgling church that needed to be encouraged. And so this is the fifth kind of courage that can take shape in the life of a disciple. It is the courage to strengthen others rather than just to seek your own strength. It's to strengthen others, to encourage. To encourage somebody literally means to put courage in them. How do you do that? By showing them and demonstrating them what courage looks like. By showing up in a moment like this. Do you think this church, after seeing what happened to Paul and Silas, expected Paul and Silas to darken their doors again when they could have gotten the heck out of Dodge. But they showed up and spent time encouraging their fellow believers. Y'all, courage might be the most contagious force on earth. To be courageous is to be contagious. Everyone who watches a courageous person is encouraged by their courage. So the difference you can make when you choose courage in the face of darkness, in the face of fear, can go beyond your own life and ripple throughout the lives of others. And this is seen in what happened in the Philippian church. I'm not going to go deep into this, but if you read Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to this same group of Christians 10 or 12 years after these events in Acts, it's the only letter that he writes to a church where he's not like, you guys are doing everything wrong. It's like, this is, the, this is a love letter. He's just like, keep going. He's like, keep following Jesus. Keep imitating him. Or, you know, as I say at times, keep imitating me as I imitated Christ in your midst. It's like encouraging them because they were born out of encouragement. They were born out of this courage that they saw in uh, Christ through Paul. Whatever is right, Dr. King said, conscience asks the question, is it right? If it's right, if it's true, if it's noble, if it's good, it's worth fighting for, and standing up for, and speaking up for, and voting for. And let's be honest for a minute. How have we, how have you allowed fear to govern your actions? to police your life? Have we allowed fear to disrupt our trust of God in a way that paralyzes us or 
or, or in a way that scares us. How we allow that to happen. It's easy to let anxiety take over, isn't it? Of course it is. Maybe the internet, I don't know. For some reason, I think seeing the world's darkness and evil all at once on our phones just freaks us out. And I think it's overwhelming to a lot of us. And so it's understandable. But at the end of the day, the question is, how's God called us to be courageous in the face of fear? How's he calling you to stir up some trouble in the way of Jesus? Not your own trouble, all right? Stir up some Christian trouble. <laughs> we make that clear, okay? How's he, how's he leading you right now to a time of suffering or hardship, seeking your trust even in that hardship? How's he inspiring you to sing in the face of darkness or uncertainty? How's he calling you to stay in an uncomfortable relationship or situation so that he might be glorified, so that he might reach others through you? And how's he calling you to be a source of strength for other believers along this often perilous journey? And maybe the most thought-provoking question I've considered this week is, what are the stories you hope people tell about you one day? What's the legacy you hope to leave behind? Is it one of safety and security and self-interest, or is it one that looks like Jesus? I pray it looks like Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this uh, reminder today. We thank you for your word that challenges and convicts us. I pray that this would um, really be absorbed in our hearts today. We would receive this challenge from your Holy Spirit to live less fearfully and more courageously. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.